Now, ladies and gentlemen, a very, a very formal welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd, and this is going to be our first session of the Torah portion of Balak because we didn't have class yesterday, so we have to make up for lost time. Today is Tuesday, which means that this should be the third reading that we study, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but we are a little bit behind, so we're going to do some catch-up. We're going to start from the beginning of the Torah portion, and we'll see how far we can get. I want to do at least two readings Maybe three, maybe we'll be caught up at the end of today, maybe not. We'll see how it goes. Right now, I'm going to share my screen. And let's jump in. Torah reading for Balak. This is Numbers chapter 22. We begin with verse 2. Gotta love when that happens, right? Remember, the Torah portions were divided based on Jewish tradition from Moses, and the chapter and verses were done by Christian scholars. Different era, different time, different uh, agenda. So that's why it doesn't match up sometimes. Just a word of clarification. So the Torah portion begins, chapter 22, verse number 2. Balak, the son of... <laughs> makes it sound like zipper. No. See, I'm going to go Hebrew. Tzipar. Tzipar. Tzipar, by the way, means bird in Hebrew. Tzipar. Balak, the son of Tzipar, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. If you recall from last week's Torah portion, when the Jewish people were trying, they just wanted to go to Israel. And no nation would let them through. Not the Edomites, not the Moabites, not the Amorites. No one would let them through. And then remember the Amorites, they were the ones that were lying in wait in the mountains. Remember the guys that were hiding in the caves of the mountain to throw the stones and crush the Jews, God forbid, that were walking on the highway beneath. But then the mountain range, before, before the Jews got to the mountain range, came together and the protrusions on one side went into the caves on the other side and crushed the Amorites. And then later on, the limbs and the blood, okay, without getting too graphic, limbs of blood kind of like floated down in the stream and the, the Jewish people saw their miracle and then they sang that for the praise uh, for the miracle and for the well. Okay, well, if you didn't remember it, I just literally just said it. So the point is that Balak who was the king of Moab, right? Balak is the guy. Moab is the nation. So Balak sees what happened to the Amorites, how they were just like, they were just gone, right? They were just eliminated. And by the way, for that matter, Sichon, Melech, oh, I'm sorry, Sichon, Melech, Mori, Og, Og, Melech, Bashan, right? Sichon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, all of those nations that started up against the Jewish people were summarily gotten rid of and, and defeated in battle. So Balak sees this, and what happens next is the following. Verse 3, Moab, the nation, became terrified of the people, of the Jewish people, for they were numerous. And Moab became disgusted because of the children of Israel. So look at the two adjectives, right? Terrified and disgusted. Disgusted is a very interesting word. It's kind of like, let's see if there's a Rashi on this. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, let's begin with Balak, the first, the first verse here. Balak saw all that Israel done to the Amorites. He said, these two kings, the kings of Sichon and Og, the giant, whom we relied on, could not resist them. We certainly cannot. In other words, we're doomed. Consequently, Mo became terrified. So let's go. Next Rashi. Mo became terrified. That refers to dread. Okay? And disgusted. Listen to this. They became disgusted with their own lives. As it says, I'm disgusted with my life. This is an abbreviated verse. Okay, I'm, they were disgusted with their own lives. That means that they were so terrified that they, 
I'm trying to think of it like a modern psychological or, you know, just a modern way of, of saying this. So they're so terrified that they're now disgusted with their own life. Not like, ugh, but more of like just a, an existential fear and a, and a, and a just an, a very unsettled state of being. That is what happened. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, a neighboring nation, now, these two were always fighting with each other. Moab and Midian, these are two different nations, two different peoples. But they, they were always, you know, at each other's necks. But, as is known, right, in, in, in history, in Jewish history, when there's a common enemy, even enemies band together for a common cause. So this, the Jewish people bring together the Moabites and the Midianites. How wonderful, actually, how terrible, because it's bringing them together for nefarious plots. Here we go. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now, this assembly, that means the group, the Jewish people, will eat up everything around us. Look at that. Eat up everything around us as the ox eats up the greens of the field. In other words, the Jewish people, this is the fear-mongering. If you want to know how you get anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic thought to be perpetuated, you create a lie. What's the lie? This people are going to eat up everything around us as the ox eats up the green of the fields. Balak, the son of Tzipor, was the king of Moab at that time, which we already were introduced to him before, but the Torah is just clarifying that, yes, he was the king of Moab. So he's, Moab sends to Midian and says, we're in trouble, they're going to destroy us, they're destroying everything, we're doomed, we've got to do something, etc. So here the plan gets hatched. Verse number five. So he, the king, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baar. Okay, that's, that's going to be another main character of this, this week. Balaam. So we have Balak, the king, and Balaam, who we will know to be the evil prophet for prophet. He was a prophet, P-R-O-F, uh, sorry, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, prophet, for prophet. He was a hired gun to bless or to curse. If you wanted a blessing, you could pay him. If you wanted to curse someone else, you could pay him. Okay, but he was legit. I'm not, he's not one of these guys that had a storefront just, you know, just uh, hustling people and, and, and taking their money, fleecing people of their, of their savings. This guy was legit. He had legit powers, divine powers. God did appear to him. And the question is, why would God actually give this bad guy powers? The answer is he gave a guy powers and the guy used it for bad things. So it's not like he gave a bad guy powers. God gives free choice. God said there will be a prophet amongst the nations. We have a Jewish prophet, Moses. There's going to be a prophet amongst the nations. But I'm going to let them and the nations choose what to do with that. Right? It's like if I gave you a superpower, this is always fun, right? Discussion about superpowers. If I gave you a superpower, if I could give a superpower, right? What would you use it for? Like in a superpower of flying or invisibility. We could use it for good, tremendous good, or tremendous evil. That's our choice. God gave Balaam a superpower, a spiritual superpower. And God says, it's all yours. What are you going to use it for? We know what Moses uses his superpower for, for the Jewish, for goodness, for Torah. And what does Balaam use it for? Nefarious activities, cursing people, trying to destroy others, making money etc. Getting famous. Listen, 
I get it. It's a big challenge. If you have that superpower, it's hard to withstand the temptation, right? If you could, if you could time travel, if you could travel through time, how tempting would it be to travel ahead, see who won the Super Bowl next year, and put a lot of money down and bet on that team? Are you with me on that? It would be very tempting. Yeah? Or to look at who the Powerball winning numbers and play the $350 million Powerball lottery and play those numbers. It would be extremely tempting to do so. Dishonest is dishonest, right? Or, you know, ethics are ethics. Spirituality is spirituality. Balaam did not use his powers in the right way, but he had powers. They were legit. He wasn't a faker. It was legit. Back to our story. So Balak, the king, sends messengers to Balaam, the evil prophet, the prophet who uses powers for evil, to Pithar, that's where he was, which is by the river of the land of his people, to call for him. That's a long way of saying that the king called for this guy. And he said the following, A people has come out of Egypt, the Jewish people, and behold, they have covered the eye of the land, and they are stationed opposite me. They've covered the eye of the land. That means like everywhere you look, Jews. You know, these stereotypes don't go away. You know the whole stereotype like Jews control the media? Jews control Wall Street? Jews control money? Jews, I keep saying jewels. Jews control like the world? Boom. That's exactly what the trope was, the anti-Semitic trope then. The Jews came out of Egypt. They're numerous. They're going to destroy us. They're covering the eye of the land. Everywhere you see, you see Jews. And now, here is why I'm panicked. Because they are stationed opposite me, said the king to the prophet. They are right knocking on my door. They're on on my border. So now, he says in the message, please come and curse this people for me. For they are too powerful for me. Perhaps, through your curse, I will be able to wage war against them and drive them out of the land, for I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. You have the power, and I want to use that power for my enemy, the Jewish people. By the way, meanwhile, like back, right, meanwhile, back at the ranch, the Jewish people have no idea, right, that they're hated so much. Well, maybe they do on some level. And they have no idea that, that, that all these plots are being you know, created against them. They're, they don't even have any plans to start up with Balak or Moab or Midjan, these nations. They're not on the agenda. But Balak is panicked. He's reaching out to his buddy or to this guy, this hired gun, to use his mouth. He, he harms through his mouth. People, some people harm through their fists. He harms through his mouth. Okay. So, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian went, right, because remember, these two nations were teaming up now, Moab and Midian. So they collectively went with magic charms in their hands. Not lucky charms, that's cereal. Magic charms in their hands. That must be some sort of sorcery, you know. Remember, this guy was like an evil prophet, black magic, the occult, uh, or whatever. He was like this evil oracle. So they had these sorcery things in their hands, and they came to Balaam, to the prophet, to the evil prophet, and conveyed Balak's message, the king's message to him. So the prophet said to the messengers, he said to them as follows, Give me the night, 
I'll give you an answer tomorrow. Lodge here for the night. And I will give you an answer when the Lord speaks to me. Because, just to explain, God would appear to him at night in a dream. So he says, look, I hear, I hear the question. I need to consult with God. Stay, stay the night. I'll give you the answer tomorrow. So the Moabite nobles stayed with Balaam. Okay, so they stayed overnight. Now, at that night, or, or that night, verse number nine, God came. Anybody enjoying this story so far? Yes? I'm loving this story. Just checking in with you guys. God came to Balaam, the prophet, and said, "Who are, as if God doesn't know, who are these men with you? We already know from the Torah that God engages people in conversation, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants to have a conversation and you need an entry point into the conversation. Like when God asked Adam after the sin of the, of the tree of knowledge, where are you? And Adam says, uh, you know, I'm just hanging around. What's going on? Why, why do you ask? Right? It's not that God didn't know Ayeka, right? Where are you? It's not like God didn't know where he was. He was engaging in a conversation. So God says to Balaam, similarly, who are these men with you? Like, I see you have some visitors. So who's your company? Like, what's going on? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Tzipor, the king of Moab, has sent these people to me saying, he's reporting, being very transparent. So the king of Moab sent these guys with a message. And here's the message. Behold, the people coming out of Egypt, the nation has covered the eye of the earth. Come and curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. He's being very transparent with God. He says, I'm, I'm, they are approaching me with a proposition to curse the Jewish people who are covering the eye of the earth. And the agenda is that I should curse them, the Jewish people, so that, the, the, so that Moab and Midian can fight and harm the Jewish people. God forbid. What's God's response? God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people because they are blessed. You shall not curse the people because they are blessed. That's what he says. Don't go. Seems straightforward. But if you paid attention to the Torah portion, it's called Balak. It's about Balak and Bilam. The story doesn't end here. I mean, you would think you would go to the people and say, no, can't go. End the story. Done. Turn the page. Nope, that's not what happens. Second reading. Numbers chapter 22, verse 13. Give me a second. All right, here we go. When Balaam arose in the morning, the, the evil prophet, right? He wakes up the next morning, and so what does he do? He said to Balak's nobles, he said to the messengers, return to your country, go back home. For the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Right? It's nished. It's not going to work out. It's not going to work out. Moab's nobles arose and came to Balak. They went back to the king. The messengers came back to the king and they said, Balaam refuses to come with us. That's it. End of story. Oh, Balak doesn't take no for an answer. So the king, Balak, continued to send dignitaries, more and higher in rank than these. All right, if these guys didn't get the job done, let me send even more chashiv, important, nobles, you know, more. Let's put more cash on the table. Let's put more. Let's up the ante here. So they came to Balaam once again. This is, this is round two. Round two. 
And they said to him, So said Balak the son of Tzipar, Please do not hesitate to come to me. In other words, don't refuse me again. And now he gives some promise. Some, uh, now he, he does the shmir. He does the, you know, the, the cash offer. For I will honor you greatly and do whatever you tell me to do. That means whatever you want, you'll get. Whatever you want. No set price. I will honor you greatly and do whatever you tell me to do. So please come and curse this people for me. Now that's an offer. Right? You come with an offer. Okay, listen, I'll give you a thousand bucks. Curse the people. No big deal. Guy says, no. Come back the next time. You're like, all right, thousand bucks. Forget a thousand dollars. You name the price. What do you want? What do you want to do this job? I have a job for you. Curse the Jewish people. God forbid. I have a job. You tell me what you want. Listen to this, 18. Balaam answered and said to Balak's servants, even if Balak gives me, he's telling the servants, right? He's telling the messengers. Even if Balak the king gives me a house full of silver and gold, I cannot do anything small or great that would transgress the word of the Lord my God. He sounds like a righteous guy. Look at this guy. He sounds like a tzaddik. He's like, oh, even if you give me all the money in the world, I can't do it. Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You know what he wants? He wants a house full of silver and gold. That's exactly what he wants. He said, even if you give me a house full of silver and gold, I cannot do what God doesn't want me to do. What's he saying? What he's saying here is that that's what he wants. House full of silver and gold. That's his way of putting it, stooping it around, putting it, in, putting it in, the, in the thing. Number one. Number two, he says, I can't do anything that God said, that they're going against God. Okay, so you would think he's going to say, and God already told me no. Not so fast. Verse 19. Now you too, please remain here overnight. <laughs> Maybe God changed his mind, and I will know what the Lord will continue to speak with me. Maybe when I tell God about my new offer, maybe God will say, you know what, Balaam, you look like you need the money. You can go ahead with it. You understand what I'm saying here? Balaam is, is on the surface, he's saying all the right things. I can't transgress the word of God. I can't go against God. And he asks, and God says no, and he says no. But when they come back the next day or the next week or whenever they came back, and they come back with an open-ended offer, you name the price. It's like the price line of cursing, right? You name the price. What do you want to receive? And, and then he says, I still can't transgress the word of God. But he adds in one other detail. But you know what? Let me run it by him. Let me run it by the boss one more time. <laughs> As if God's going to change his mind. Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If these men have come to call for you, arise and go with them. But the word I will speak, to, but the word I speak to you, that you shall do. God tells him, You want to go? Go. But I'll tell you, even if you go and try to curse them, the word I speak to you, that is what you shall do. You're not going to ever say a word that I don't let you say, which is foreshadowing the events of this week's Torah portion where the curses literally transform from his mouth into blessings, which we'll cover in detail this week. All right, I'm going to stop here because I, as I said before, there's some logistics that I need to, to deal with, with the, with the kinderlach, with the kids. Um, so I want to leave you with a few ideas. Number one, God doesn't change his mind. But, and this is probably the most important thing of this idea. But, give me one second. Mendel, can I call you back in two?
Okay, I'll call you back in two minutes. God doesn't change his mind. That's number, point number one. But, and this is very important, God does not take away a person's free choice. God gave his answer night number one. Balaam says, can I go? Should I go? God says, no. Then a better offer lands in his doorstep. And Balaam really wants to go. But he needs the okay. So what does God say? If you want to go, go. I'm not going to stop you. Right? If these men have come to call for you and you want to go, arise and go with them. In other words, God is not changing his mind and saying, you know what? I think you should go curse the Jewish people, God forbid. Of course not. God, I told you no. My answer is no. Don't go. But you're telling me you still want to go. You still want to go? Knock yourself out. Go. But the outcome won't be as you want. Because you and I have free choice to choose our actions, but we don't control outcome. So we're touching on some of the biggest ideas in Judaism. The foundation of free choice and the foundation of outcomes versus actions. There is the notion of free choice. You and I have free choice. God does not remove it because he does not like what we're doing. If that would be the case, there would never have been a holocaust. There would never have been Egyptian slavery in the beginning. There would never be auto de fas and crusades and inquisitions and pogroms and no other genocides and no harm and no pain and no suffering and no slavery, no racism. None of that would exist if God were to remove free choice when somebody was going against what God wanted. None of the evils in the world would exist. You look around the world, you look at history, evil exists. So what's the answer? God does not take away free choice. And that is what God is asserting to Balaam in verse 20. I told You asked me what you should do. I told you. Now you're telling me you want to go? Go. Not that I'm changing my mind, but I'm granting you free choice. Freedom of choice. You can choose. I'm not going to stop you. That's point number one. And point number two is, at the same time, you are not guaranteed your outcome. You could have a nefarious plot. I will, I reserve the right to intervene in the outcome. Not in the choice, not in the action, but in the outcome. God does intervene sometimes in outcomes. Now you, you could ask the question, how come God doesn't always um, intervene in outcomes? And to that I don't have an answer. That's God. God knows when and why. But we, you and I know that action doesn't equal outcome. In business, we can make all the phone calls, all the connections, and the deal falls through. We could do nothing, and somebody calls us up out of nowhere for a deal. So outcomes are a little bit separated from action. We saw this with Joseph. Joseph goes to the butler and says, you know, put in a good word, and he forgets. And it's only two years later that Pharaoh has dreams, and Joseph is collected from, from prison and, uh, and, 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 and asked to, to speak before the king and becomes viceroy. Outco action and outcome is not always, sometimes it's synced up, sometimes there's a separation. God says to Balaam, you're going to curse? You want to go curse? Curse. But I reserve the right. I reserve the right, the outcome. You're going to say curses, but out might come blessings. I reserve that right. I hope that makes sense. So those are two, the, the, the idea, the principle of free choice and the principle of that we don't control outcomes, we just control choices. Those two are very important. Also, it's a lesson in life not to own outcome. Like, don't get down if we tried and we didn't succeed. We just have to try again because the outcomes are not always in our control. There's a lot of messages that spin off from these two ideas, but I, for, for, the time of, uh, for the sake of time, we have to end here. I also want to mention one more thing, very quickly. 
Um, part of the, um, the fear-mongering was about the Jewish people covering the eye of the land. They have covered the eye of the land. I want to tell you a positive take on that. It's our job to cover the eye of the land, not necessarily physically with, with people, but it's eye is the view or the perception. Eye is how people look at things. We're meant to introduce a Jewish way of looking, not necessarily that everybody does all 613 mitzvahs, but a Jewish perspective, a Jewish way, Jewish values in the world so that our, what we stand for, the Torah that we represent should cover the eye of the world, should be the perspective, the lens through which the world is seen and people see each other, a, a, a lens of beauty and purpose and meaning and God and spirituality and only good things. All right, with this, we'll close it out. Um, apologies for, well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, we, we had a, uh, we were able to get through the first two readings. We didn't get through the third reading, so we didn't catch up fully. But tomorrow, please God, we will do three and four and catch up for the readings. Thank you for joining me today. Ray and Joy and Donna and Olia, first time, welcome. And we'll see you guys soon. See you tomorrow. Tonight, Curious Tales of the Talmud, if you're not yet on that class, consider joining. It's fantastic. Tonight may be the best class I've ever taught. We'll see how it goes, but that's my plan. Um, okay, we'll see. If you want information about how to jump in on that, just text me or email me or call me. Bye, everybody. Have a wonderful day. See you guys. Bye. Take care.